Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. As you've heard uh, many times in the last few days and even today, that uh, we're in the, the season of Pesach. Can you say Pesach? <laughs> All right, good. You have to clear your throat at the end a little bit. Let's try it again. Pesach. <laughs> Very good. And this season, and Hagamatzot, also Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then also Resurrection Time, the fe fe really the feast of commemoration of Yeshua's resurrection. I don't know if we get a richer time of the year. Now, I say that we, at our family Seder, we had a discussion of over which was our favorite holy day. <laughs> and I loved uh, one of the answers. It was my wife Miriam's answer. She said, and it's something I've also said, too. It's like, well, whatever one's happening now is kind of my favorite. <laughs> but how many of you do like Passover a lot? I do. I like it a lot there. And that's really the topic that I want to speak of, as you might expect, during this Hagamatzot week. And Passover and the other biblical feast, uh, except for Shabbat, really, go back to the time of Moshe. And we read about them in the Torah. And the Shabbat goes back to creation. It reminds us the seventh day the Lord rested. And the other ones are more or less linked with the, the words of Moshe, where God revealed to Moses his feast days. And I say that advisedly, they are his feast days. He just gives us a hasmanah, an invitation to commemorate those feast days. He invites us. Commemorating those feast days does not change our personal identity. <laughs> Does not change our personal background, but it is an invitation that we can together uh, celebrate the good things of the Lord and particularly his calendar. The first Pesach, Passover, as I think everyone here would understand and know, occurred in the book of Exodus. That's where, we're, where it's described to us and God commands it in Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus, uh, particularly in chapter 12 and forward. But chapter 12 is where we, we find our, our description of, of the first Passover, the Pesach of the Lord. But yet, uh, this imagery and the words and the themes that we have in Passover continue from that point forward all the way to the end of Scripture. So the word Passover occurs a number of times, but the imagery of Passover, the, the imagery of, of the, the, the matters that are pertain to Passover continue throughout the Bible. The themes of Passover continue throughout the Bible. 
Let me just point out three particular scriptures that deal with, I'm going to use the scriptures from the Brit Hadashah from the New Covenant, three that you know very well that you've probably heard if you were at our Passover Seder on Thursday evening, uh, you probably remember these scriptures. For example, John chapter 1 verse 29, talking about Passover imagery, the next day Yochanan Ampil, John the Immerser, saw Yeshua coming towards him. And of all the things John could have said, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you recognize that idea of the Lamb of God? It's a Pesach, a Paschal idea. Also in 1 Corinthians 5, very important scripture for us, beginning with verse 6, says, Your, your glory is not good. Rav Shaul is, in a sense, chiding and exhorting the Corinthian believers. Your exhorting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Does that sound like Passover terminology to you? Little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then it continues in this great midrash, this great teaching, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened, this is very much, how many agree, this Passover terminology, you truly are unleavened. And then if you didn't agree with that, well, look at the next statement. For indeed, Mashiach, Messiah, our Pesach, our Passover was sacrificed for us. How many of you think that's Passover territory? I hope so, because it says it right there. Indeed, Messiah, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Verse 8, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread, if you will. Some translations, especially modern messianic ones, even say, but with the matzah, the matzah. Is that Passover terminology? Yes. With the matzah, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And last week, I had a chance to deal with these particular passages, but I want to include one more that I think has Passover imagery connected to it. And it's found in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, begin with verse 22. And see, as I read this passage, as, it, uh, as, you, as you read it, if you, if you see some Passover imagery in this. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its lights, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. Verse 26, the book of Revelation chapter 1 continues, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. By the way, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you received him as your personal Lord and Savior? It's not the time to think about your neighbor's status. But is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And are you truly living that out? That's the question that Passover brings to us. 
when we consider unleavened bread versus that really yeasty stuff that we have, that he wants us to serve him and follow him. And one of the things I truly love about Pesach and Hagamatzot and Bikorim and all the feasts of the Lord is that there are, there are reminders to us throughout the year to make sure we're walking with God in the way that he desires. As we look at Scripture before the coming of Yeshua, if you've read the Besorot, the Gospels, you know that there are several Passovers that are spoken of within the Gospels and even that Yeshua participated in. One at age 12 where he got left behind. <laughs> the original left behind story right there. Where he got left behind. And later on at the, the other, some say two or possibly three, depending on how you, you the chronologically place the, the passage of Scripture in the, in the Gospels that mentions the time of Passover and Yeshua commemorating it. Back in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are a number of other Passovers that are uh, designated and, and pointed out and, and shown to us. For example, the one I already mentioned is the first one in Exodus chapter 12. The original one with the, the placing of the, the dam, the blood on the mezuzot, the lintels of the, of the door. There's another one that's mentioned in Numbers 9, which was at, at, um, in the Sinai, and then a third one in the time of Joshua and Joshua chapter 5, that was El Gilgal. There's a fourth one, a very interesting one, that took place under King Hezekiah, and it happened at Jerusalem. It's mentioned in Second Chronicles 30. There's also a fifth one that took place where this one is the one I'm going to emphasize here before we conclude. But that was one that took place in Jerusalem under King Josiah. A lot of Scripture deals with that. There are two sections of Scripture with many details about what happened with Josiah. And then there's also a sixth one, major uh, mention of, of Passover. The very thing we've been commemorating here, we had at our homes on Wednesday and Thursday at our congregational Seder. But there was a Passover of the regathered exiles from Babylon under, under, uh, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's also mentioned in Scripture. There are several others, but these are major ones, six major Passover celebrations besides what we read about in the Brit Hadashah. And I think there are lessons to glean. There are lessons to glean for our personal and community lives as we examine each of these Passovers. There's something to gain from there. There's a reason why there are things in the Word of God written for our instruction upon whom the end of the age has come. The things we read in the Word are written for us. They are actually a treasure for us. How many agree that the Word of God's a treasure for us? How many times, if, if, you're, if you're really open to it and you seek God, and how many times if you go to Scripture, that Scripture will, will speak to you? And no, I don't mean lips come into the book. But I mean by the Ruach HaKodesh, He speaks to us and, and challenges our hearts. Or in your mid, you're in the middle of doing something and a scripture comes to your mind. And I know because our worship team, we share scriptures before we come out here each Shabbat. And that group is ready in season and out of season to share scriptures. <laughs> but frankly and honestly, how many of you can say that there have been times in your life where a, a passage of scripture came to your mind 
in the middle of a situation and it was helpful for you. Would you please raise your hand if that's happened to you? It's happened to me many times, and apparently it's happened to you also. But when we study the feast, we're, we're, we're studying those things that God ordained. They didn't come by the decree of man. God ordained these feasts. They're his uh, moadim, his appointed times, and he shares them with us. So I want to particularly focus on what might be called the rediscovery of Pesach or Passover that happened with Josiah. As I mentioned, there are several texts that deal with this. One is in 2 Kings chapter 23, and the second is 2 Chronicles chapter 35. These are lengthy texts, so I won't have a chance to go over all this with you. But we will read some of it. Now, this King Josiah, how many have heard of Josiah? Hopefully, most of us have. Now, this King Josiah was a very unusual king, even in relationship to the other kings of Judah and Israel, really. He was a very unusual king. And, and I think you'll, you'll figure out, really, from our first description of him, one of the unusual senses about this king. And as we come to the Passover that he commemorates, the, the rediscovery of Pesach that he establishes under his rule, uh, keep in mind that that was the kind of an end process for him before they came to the celebration of Passover, commemorated and, and instituted again by Josiah, by his decree within Israel and in Jerusalem. There had been a number of other events that had, had transpired through Josiah's reign which were extremely important. Now, here's what it says about Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. Josiah was eight years old. <laughs> what were you doing when you were eight years old? <laughs> and for some of us, the question is, what weren't we doing when we were eight years old? <laughs> But he was eight years old. There's been a lot of discussion about it, but it mentions twice in two different places that he was eight years old. He was eight years old when he became king, and then it goes on in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 1, and it says he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. It gives us his mother's name. His mother's name was Jedida. <laughs> I'm going to call her Betsy. Is that all right? <laughs> no, his, his mother's name was Jedida, the daughter of Adiah of Boscat. Phew. Verse 2, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And how many of you know that when you do what's right in the sight of the Lord, it is better for you? How many of you know that? The converse is also true. If you do what's not right in the sight of the Lord, it's not better for you. The bottom line is do what's right in the sight of the Lord. Desire to be pleasing to him in all things. And this young man, or this, this really child of eight years old, ended up in a place of authority, of ruling. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. Now, other kings had come in between David and Josiah, but it's like he went back to where David started. 
And there's a process going on right now among believers to go back to where it all began, back to the book of Acts, back to the writings of the new covenant. There's been a lot of church history and Jewish history in that time frame, but we want to go back to what did the word of God say? What was it originally uh, spoken? How, how was it broadcasted? How was it uh, explained in the first century? And Josiah, the process that he went through, he went back, he kind of leapfrogged back and, and through by probably his counselors, family members, godly people around him, he connected more with the ways of King David than some of the others that came after David. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways of his father David. And then there's this Hebraism here, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, which basically means he kept his eyes forward. He had his hand to the plow, and he didn't look back. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse, verse 3 continues as we, uh, we start to mesh these two texts, these lengthy texts about this king. And it continues, uh, he was eight years old when he became king and he reigned for 31 years, we're told in Second Kings chapter 22, verse 1. And then in Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 3, it says, in the eighth year of his reign. Well, we can do the math Somewhere at the age of 15 or 16, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek after the God of his father, David. Friends, please hear this. Do not look down on young people. Do not look down and by that. You, uh, you see all the fads and stuff. And how many of you, I won't even ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you went through a few fads when you were a teenager? <laughs> I remember beetle boots. I'm really dating myself of beetle boots there, that type of thing. But don't, young people need prayer. They need guidance. They, they need, you know what they need? An example in front of them. An example that's, that's really down to earth and real, not fake. But just imagine a whole generation of Josiahs and Hezekiahs and Rob Shaul's and Apollos's. Imagine them. So in the eighth year of his reign, Josiah was about 16 years old about that time. While he was still young, he began to seek after the God of his father, David. And young people hearing these words, seek God. Put him first in your life. That is the most important thing you can do. Now, I really appreciate what biblical historian Dr. S.J. Schultz, and trying to fill the gaps here, how did this very young king then come by eight years later, he's a young king, but eight years later he, he begins to do these amazing things like seeking after the God of his father. What happened? And biblical historian Dr. S.J. Schultz describes Josiah's actions during the first eight years of his reign like this. This is what Dr. Schultz wrote. He's a renowned theologian, by the way. Quote, Josiah reacted personally against the apostate conditions that surrounded him during the first eight years of his reign. Now, remember, he's a 15-year-old young person. It is not improbable that Josiah had godly tutors 
and pious political leaders who influenced him during these years. Please, friends, don't downplay the amount of influence you can have on younger people. You can have a great impact. Parents, you can have a great impact on your children, how you conduct yourself, how you speak to them, how you encourage them, how you exhort them, how you train them, how you direct them. You can have a great influence. Someone, and someone's perhaps plural it seems, had a big impact on Josiah. Advisors, counselors, family members, we're never told. It's one of those hidden aspects of history. To have an eight-year-old, then by the time he's 16, he becomes a, a, a man after God's heart. He seeks after the God of his father, David. Dr. Schultz goes on and says, quote, Josiah's religious leadership ranks him with Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah as an outstanding, notice this next word, Dr. Schultz adds, an outstanding righteous ruler, end quote. Is there a difference in a nation when the rulers are righteous? Yes. Pray for our nation that we will have righteous rulers. It's not a partisan statement I'm making here. It's a biblical statement that we will have righteous rulers making decisions concerning this nation. And while you're at it, please, please pray for Israel that Israel will also have righteous rulers. And think in terms of those which would allow the kingdom of God to flourish and not be thwarted. Now, again, Second Chronicles 34, verse 3, as we unpack a little bit about Josiah's life, starts out at a very young age being king, probably had counselors around him who guided him, and he does great things. It's, uh, as uh, Dr. Schultz says, Josiah reacted personally. He reacted personally against the apostate conditions. If you want a very interesting study, go back to these two texts that I mentioned in Kings and Chronicles, Second Kings and Second Chronicles, and start listing the very things it says Josiah did. Make sure you're not tired when you start writing because he did many great things like removing idols, casting down high places, stopping children from walking through the fire, uh, raising up leadership. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Incredible things this young king did. Second Chronicles 34, verse 3, again, it continues. The first part says, In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek after the God of his father David. Second Chronicles 34 continues, In the twelfth year, in the twelfth year, so he's about 12, let's say he's about 20 years old at this point. In the twelfth year, Josiah began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places, the Asherah poles, and the carved and molten images, and that's just the beginning of it. The very things I had just mentioned prior. By the time he's 20 years old, he's saying, this stuff has to go. And he realizes he has the authority. He realizes he has a great leadership around him and a guidance, etc., counsel. And he said, get rid of this stuff. And it's so curious that when you follow the process of what happened with Josiah, that these changes that he institutes because he's an authority and God's hands on him and he's seeking the God of his father, David, that these changes actually lead us to Passover, and what happens with Passover? 
And as these changes came into the area of Jerusalem and Yehuda and uh, all of what we call modern-day Israel, as the changes under Josiah came in, it's like the heart of the people were being prepared. They were being prepared for something that was going to come forward. Have you ever felt like God prepared you for things? He does. He prepares us. And so there, a very unique thing happens, and it has to do with Passover. In 2 Kings chapter 23 and 2 Chronicles chapter 35, it tells us that the great Passover under Josiah took place in the 18th year of his reign. That would make him approximately 26 years old. You can follow this through from age 8, then age 12, age 16, and now his 26th year. Age 20 and then 26 years. You can follow that through in the text. And this Passover that we're going to conclude with here and discuss, this Passover under Josiah came about due to the discovery while they're cleaning the house, the house of the Lord, the discovery of a long-lost book. And you know what that book was? <laughs> it wasn't the late great planet Earth. It wasn't I'm okay, you're okay, or anything like that. It was a Torah scroll. And I hope you'll come next week because we are having a Torah reading next week. But it was a Torah scroll. It was found in the house of God. And it's almost like providential. Can I use that term? Providential that it was discovered at that very time. The hearts of the people were prepared for action. They understood that this king, this righteous king, this king who wanted to follow the ways of David, his father, wanted to make sure that that happened within his whole area of domain. And he influenced the people more and more towards the gods of his, God of his father. And King, King, King Josiah has that scroll read to him. And you can read about this in Second Chronicles 35, the details. He has it read to him. And, you know, if you read the Torah, particularly get into sections of Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, <laughs> you have the, if you do this, then I'll do that. <laughs> if you don't do this, then this is what's going to happen to you. And we don't know what text he was reading exactly from in the, in the Sefer Torah, in the, in the Torah scroll, but he, re, he has it read to him, and the text tells us about this. He has it read to him, and then he's thinking, oh, some of this we have not been doing. We've been remiss. We haven't been following the Feast of the Lord, for example. So he, he seeks second counsel, and you know where he goes to? He goes to a prophetess we don't talk about very often, but her name was Hulda. Hulda, she lived in Jerusalem. I've actually been to her grave, her uh, traditional site of her grave. He goes to Hulda, and he, he, he says, is this, is this true? And she says, yes, it's very true. <laughs> And she gives a, thus saith the Lord to him. With a nice little thing on the end, she was probably aware of his heart towards the Lord. And she said, but your, your time's going to be in peace. But yes, all that's written in that Torah is true, and you should follow it, basically, I'm paraphrasing. 
So he consults Hulda, who was a prophetess in Jerusalem, about the meaning of the words of the Torah scroll. And, and then Josiah did this in 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning with verse 1. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Kohanim, the priests, and the Nevim, the prophets, and, and Kol Ha'am, all the people, both the great ones and the small ones. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. So he hears the word of the Lord himself, and you know what he does, and it's something we need to do too. He shares the word of the Lord with others. Please don't hold back the gospel from your friends and family. Even if they're not interested in hearing it, the gospel has, it's been said, an inherent power to it. They may seem like they're not listening, but those ears are open. Unless they're going like this and putting their hands over their ears, that word is seeming, now don't be obnoxious about it, be loving. And Josiah thought, I need to share this with everyone. He gathers everyone, not just the, the, the machers, the big shots, but he, he gets the small and the great, and, they, and he read and they're hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. And verse 3 says, then the king stood by a pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord. Be careful what you do before the Lord, by the way. He made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. So not only did he come to a personal recognition that he needed to follow the word of the Lord, but the people around him that he had been influencing for years, they took that stand too. And what happens? Well, that's where Passover comes in. Passover took place during, we're told, in the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, about 26 years old. Second Chronicles 35, beginning with verse 1, says, Now Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month, and he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. And read all this chapter if you're interested in 2 Chronicles 35. It gives us some figures and facts about how many lambs were slain. How many did he personally contribute? He was very generous. And usually where there's godliness, there's generosity. He was very generous with thousands of lambs he contributed. He called the people around himself, the, the great and the, the small, the young and the old and everyone. He called around, then he helps provide for them. Verse 6, 2 Chronicles 35 continues, uh, they were told to slaughter the Passover offerings, con consecrate themselves, and prepare them for your brethren that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And here's what happened, what I was just trying to describe to you, verse 7. Then Josiah gave the lay people lamb, Second Chronicles 35, verse 7, gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock, all for Passover offerings for all who were present, to the number of 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. 
He was a generous, open-hearted king, and godliness and generosity are united at the hips. Even the term tzedakah, which means righteousness, also has the idea of generosity. So he gave the, to the number 30,000, as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possession, verse 8. And his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests and to the Levites. Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Yechiel, rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings. 2,600 from the flock and 300 cattle. Now, that's a lot of beef and lamb right there. Also Konaniah, his brother Shemaiah, and Natanel, and Hashabiah, and Yehiel, and Josabad, chief of the Leviim, the Levites, gave to the Leviim, the Levites, for Passover offerings, 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So the service was prepared, and the Kohanim, the priests, stood in their places, and the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command. He has oversight of all this. And they slaughtered the Passover offerings, and the Kohanim, the priests, sprinkled the blood with their hands while the Levites skinned the animals. And by the way, the text does get pretty graphic if you read it. Then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the fathers' houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses, so they did with the cattle. And it continues on. And let's skip ahead to the final outcome. Second Chronicles 35, verse 15. And the singers. There has to be music in a revival, doesn't there? <laughs> and the singers, the son of Asaph were in their places according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, Yeruthan, the king's seer. Also, the gatekeepers were at each gate. Shomrim, gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not have to leave their position because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. So they were being Shomrim, they were gatekeepers, and someone brought out portions to them and took care of them so they can continue doing what they should do. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover, to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. Nowhere does it say that he gets, well, this will get, get a little bit too much now. Let's, let's cut this off. Nowhere does he do that. He keeps this thing going. He wants all the people to get what Passover is all about. Verse 17, and the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the feast of unleavened bread, Hagamatzot, for seven days. There had been, verse 18 is really a culmination statement. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that. Notice this, please. Since the days of Shmuel Hanavi, Samuel the prophet, this had not happened since Samuel, which is the end of the judges' period. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the Kohanim, the priests, and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 19 gives us a bit of a day and a way to connect us back to Josiah. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. How old was he? Somewhere around 26 years old. Now, I'm going to conclude by 
I think there's a lot to learn from this. And again, I strongly encourage you, if you love to read Scripture, read these sections about Josiah. But I want to leave you with eight things to glean from the Passover and the revival under Josiah. And there are many more than eight. It was hard to choose just eight. Number one, I think you've gotten, if you've been listening to what I've been saying, you, you got number one down. Age is not an essential criteria of revival. God can use an eight-year-old, a three-year-old, a 22-year-old, even a 122-year-old. You think I'm exaggerating? <laughs> Moses was how old? 120 in his last days. So age is not an essential criteria revival. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 12 says, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And if a young person is heading that direction, no one's going to despise them. They'll actually appreciate them with an increasing appreciation. And then it says, verse 13, need we forget it, till I come, give attention to reading. The implication is studying the Word, to exhortation, to teaching, to doctrine. Number one, age is not an essential criteria of revival. Number two, God's work among his people occurs little by little, but results in increasing kingdom impact. You can see this clearly in Josiah's life. Starts out as an eight-year-old, and if you read carefully, and you even if you, if you chart what he does, it's increasing. And the final thing is when he comes to this Passover, the whole community is involved with the Passover. And he and his generosity makes sure they're involved with Passover. God's work among his people occurs little by little, but results in increasing kingdom impact. And it reminds me of another parable <laughs> that I think does connect with Passover. <laughs> it's Luke chapter 13, verse 20. And again, Yeshua said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Now, leaven is typically a symbol of sin in Scripture, but you can't say that dogmatically it's always about sin. There are this place and other places where leaven or yeast is not necessarily a bad thing. And isn't that true? How many of you enjoy a good piece of risen bread? And I know it's cruel for me to say that now. When we just have these, these planks... But leaven can be a good thing. In this case, and again, Yeshua said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Number three, the word of God is the ultimate authority in revival and, in fact, in all human matters. Now, uh, 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 just to be clear, yeah, there may be decrees coming down from Washington, D.C., or Jerusalem, but those that come from Hashemayim, from the heavens, they can't be blotted out. Who's going to dispute those? So the Word of God is essential when it comes to matters of revival, particularly even in our own lives. We must be people who are geared towards the Word of God. Number four, this is almost, it goes without saying, but number four, godly leadership is a key to genuine revival. Godly leadership 
and that connects with number five. People working in accord, in accord with the leadership help the revival spread. This is a basic uh, a tenet of Judaism in Tehillim, Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is. What? For brethren to dwell together in unity. And then in verse 3, a little bit later, talks about a physical place, but spiritually, for there the Lord commanded the blessing. Psalm 133, verse 3. And number six, generosity and a benevolent heart attitude are important aspects of Holy Spirit revival. Aren't you glad that God is a generous God? He's very good to us. And we, you know, in Judaism, uh, we, we say a blessing. There's a blessing that's said over everything we eat. Almost everything that we do, there's a blessing. And I like that in principle. I think it's so important that we be a people, the new covenant says, a people who are grateful to God. And there's a big difference between being a grateful person and, can I say it, an ungrateful person. There's a big difference. We should be grateful to God. He's generous and kind to us. As we sang today, Lord, you are good to all. Has he been good to you? Yes. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, when we think about Holy Spirit revival and, and the flow of the Spirit within our lives, Luke 11, verse 13 comes to me. Yeshua, these are the words of our Messiah. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to those who ask him? And I do think at times there's a disconnect because we don't ask the Lord for a deepened measure of his spirit. And number seven of eight, revival includes worship of one or more types. Did you notice the singers were involved with this? Uh, they were singing. They were rejoicing. They were right in the middle of it. How many of you, when you've had something really exciting and good happen in your life, you, you, you break out in a song, you don't even realize it? And it's okay if you're in the car. If you don't have a great voice and you're in the car by yourself, it's just fine. Or if you're in the shower and the door's closed and the other door's closed, then go for it. Let it loose. <laughs> But music and song inspiration, that was Davidic, wasn't it? It was Davidic. All the Psalms, in essence, are songs. Wouldn't we love to have the ancient melodies or the, the, the sheet music for those songs? <laughs> it would be incredible. But we don't. But it says, sing and make melody in your heart unto the Lord in the book of Colossians. And lastly, number eight, and there really are many more points to this revival, but number eight. Speaking of points, revival points to the Lord and lifts him up. Beware of so-called revival that centers on any person. Revival always points to the Lord. The true new life that's coming in, and it reminds me of something Yeshua said in Yohanan, John chapter 12, beginning with verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. And then Yeshua continues and he says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll do what? I will draw all peoples to myself. He's in the process of drawing people from every nation and tongue unto himself and to enter into the body of believers, the body of Messiah, the spiritual representation of him. 
Now, there's one final thought that I want to conclude. Again, we have to thumb, thumb back to the, the section of Second Chronicles chapter 35. When Josiah died, he died from an archer's arrow. Ill-advised, many think, ill-advised um, connection with um, a struggle that was going on with the Egyptians that he could have stayed out of, but he didn't. But he died from an archer's arrow. He was a young man. He was approximately 39 years old. And when word got out that he had died in up near, I guess it was at Megiddo. Some of you have been to Megiddo. When he was killed at Megiddo by the archer's arrow, word got out. And Second Chronicles chapter 35 has this unusual statement, I think, beginning with verse 25. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. Can you imagine the weeping prophet Jeremiah lamenting for Josiah? What did that sound like? Some think that some of what Jeremiah lamented was about Jerusalem in general, but, but hidden in there in, in those pages of the book of Echav Lamentations, hidden in there is this, this process that he went through with this beloved king, Josiah. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah, and to this day, all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. And they made it a custom in Israel. Indeed, they are written in the laments. Many think that's the book of Lamentations, but that's another subject. In verse 26 of Second Chronicles 35. Now the rest of the acts or the deeds of Josiah and his goodness. What a way to end up talking about someone. Josiah and his goodness, friends, we as believers should go about doing good as much as possible. And don't let anyone pull you away from that, because Yeshua went about doing good and healing all those who are oppressed by the devil. Don't let anyone put you down because you're doing what's right, because God will be wanting you to lift up his name in the midst of your deeds. Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from first to last, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Will you pray with me? And may we be inspired at this, from this ancient Passover, this young king who really stepped up to the proverbial plate spiritually and led his people in the right direction. May we Turn to our Messiah, and may he lead us in all that he has for us. Let's pray. Adon Yeshua, Lord Yeshua, thank you for, for this Passover season. Thank you that even as we are contemplating, considering, practicing Hagamatzot at this time, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, thank you for the inspiration we draw from, from those who came before us. King Josiah, Hezekiah, others who came before us, King David. But most of all, we thank you for the example of your son, Yeshua, our Messiah, who laid down his life as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world, who laid down his life as unleavened bread, no sin in him and sacrificed his life as a ransom for us. We thank you for Yeshua. May you be blessed in our lives, not only this day, this Shabbat Passover, but in each day that comes. 
And I ask these things according to his merit alone, the Holy One of Israel. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.